Let's pray. God, as we sing that refrain, um, I pray that you would help us this morning to, to see you, uh, to behold you. Uh, as we open your word, I pray that you'd open our eyes to the wonder of the grace of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, help us to behold the things that we are distracted from. Open our eyes to the different shades of our own struggle against sin that we might be able to put aside in a fresh way things that compete for our attention, our affection, and, and love you more as a result of being here together than we did when we walked in. Thank you for your love for us and that while we were sinners that Christ died for us. Thank you that at the right time when we were weak that you died for the ungodly Jesus. And amaze us at your grace this morning. Help us, uh, help us to be humble and hungry and God, I pray for your help to be able to serve uh, this church family, these people that I love and feel uh, just even my own frailty as I try to preach on deep waters and deep things this morning um, and ask for your help that I be able to serve this body well. Thank you for your word that is living and active and stands ready to instruct and train and correct and rebuke and to form us more and more to the image of Jesus. So help us to be ready to hear what you have for us to hear this morning. Help us to see the things that you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Just quick P.S. In about 17 minutes, you might see somebody walk through the door. Just act like it doesn't happen, okay? There might be one person that strolls in without their clock reset, but... Uh, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you can open to the book of James. We'll be on page 950 if you're using a chair Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of those. It's our gift to you. Uh, but you can grab your Bibles. And we're going to be going through the book of James again. We're, we're preaching verse by verse through the book of James. We're going to take just one small chunk this morning. But I want to ask you a question before we get in. And it's with the intent for us to not just kind of disconnect from theological principles and truth that we'll hear and try to really think meaningfully about like what difference does this make for you? So I want you to think about just even this last week and maybe as you go into this coming week, like what's a particular trial that you're facing or that you have faced? What's a particular temptation maybe that you're, you're facing or that you believe you will face this coming week? As you think about whatever that is, or maybe the multiple things that come to mind for you, I want you to really, along with me as we go through this section of James, think about like what difference does this truth make in my battle against that particular temptation or when I face that particular trial? Because I, I think it's a good exercise for us to just sit and to ask God for help to be able to walk out of here, not just kind of informed on a particular verse in the Bible, but, but, but to really see like, how does this come to bear on my thinking, on my life, on my perspective, on my battle in the midst of trial and temptation, which is central to the first chapter of the book of James. We've seen that. So I wanna ask you just to consider those things. And as we, as we understand just and as we sit underneath the, the beautiful light of the gospel again, if I could just say it this way, like one of the ways that it impacts us every single Sunday we come together, we think about the, the wonder of the cross and the wonder of the resurrection is that one of the things that we should walk away with remembering is that our greatest problem has been solved. So despite what challenge you go through this week, 
you can realize that my greatest challenge, my greatest difficulty, my greatest danger has been solved through Jesus Christ. And maybe as you face trial and like in our hearts, we find ourselves battling time and time again with wanting to chase after lesser things. I pray that one of the things would happen as well is that we'd be reminded that we have deep, boundless treasure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in temptation, we could be reminded that life is found in God because everything good is found in him. So we're going to read James 1, verses 16 through 18. We covered 16 and 17 a little bit last week, but I'm going to tie it into verse 18, which is the primary verse we're going to look at this week. And then Pastor Bill and Pastor Mike, uh, Mike first next week, and then Pastor Bill after that, we'll, we'll, we'll cover a, a decent, decently bigger section, but we're really going to champion one verse this morning, and you'll see why in just a minute. It's got a lot of deep truth in it, but let's read James 1, 16 through 18. This is God's word for us. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, in, in verse 16, as we looked at last week, there's this, there's this command to Christians, like, don't, don't be deceived. Like, in the midst of your trial, don't believe that God is someone that he's not. Don't begin to believe that God is like something that he's not like. Like, he's not tempted by evil because he's 100% good. He is light in him. There's no darkness at all. So, as you go through the challenges of your own trials and temptations. Don't blame God for being the source of your temptation. Don't be deceived. He's entirely good and right. He doesn't tempt anyone. And so as you think about your circumstances, one of the things we talked about a lot in the last few weeks is trials can, can be disorienting. And the movement of and the ups and downs of difficulty can be dizzying in their variation. And one of the things that James tells us is that although everything around you may vary, just like shadows shift all the time based on the rotation of the universe and the earth itself, don't get it twisted to think that somehow God varies in who he is. Every time you come back to him, he will be the same as you found him the first time you went. Every time you come to him, you'll find him to be exactly the same as when you left. There's no variation or change or shifting shadow with God. Don't be deceived just because your trials and temptations toss you to and fro, that somehow God is tossed to and fro. Here's the main idea for this morning. The spiritual life is the greatest of God's good and perfect gifts. Spiritual life is the greatest of God's good and perfect gifts. So as you look back in verse 17, it says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 18, in my estimation, is, is pointing us to the fact that verse 18 is the expression of the greatest gift coming from above from the Father, namely that he has brought us forth. He's given us birth, that word could be translated. He's given us spiritual life. 
when we were dead. That's the greatest source of good news in the entire universe. Spiritual life is the greatest form of God's good and perfect gifts to us. It's the chief of the treasures of God, spiritual rebirth, contrasted with spiritual death in verse 15. Go back there with me. Look back in verse 15. It says, speaking of the way in which we are tempted, it says, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So there's this parallel that we see from verse 15 and verse 18, this notion of bringing something forth. And so if you're with us last week, we saw this spiritual parallel between verse 4 and verse 15. Just scan real quick. I'll do a quick survey of this. So the parallel is this, verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the picture from a positive sense is in the midst of trial, God is producing steadfastness, and that steadfastness will promote maturity in a Christian. And it'll be complete ultimately. It's going to work to the place of full and final completion. But we saw this kind of sinful parallel in verse 15 wherein what we see is that our desires drag us off and sin becomes fully grown, and at the end, we're rewarded with death. That's the kind of the, the parallel between the two. The Christian life, devoted to God, pursuing God, steadfast in trial will promote life, and if you're given to your own sinful desires, dragged off and enticed by those, they'll lead you to a place of ultimately destruction and Death, And so today we see a, a different kind of parallel. The same language is used at the end of verse 15. It brings forth death, namely our desires. Our desires conceive and give birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. In verse 18, God's will and God's word bring us forth. They give us birth. They give us spiritual life. I don't think it's an accidental thing that James uses the same terms. So God's will and God's word bring forth life, new life in the heart of a human being. And the picture of birth echoes what we hear from Jesus in John 3.3, one of the most famous passages in Jesus' ministry. He deals with a religious person, Nicodemus. He says, unless you are born born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, unless one is born of water, namely physical birth and the spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is going to sound a little funny, but there's no baby in the history of the universe that has ever, before they were conceived, asked their parents to be born. This never happened. It never will. That's always the will and the desire of the parent. And that's what you see James zooming in on here. That of his will, the father of lights, the one who, is, who spoke and the world began, it's of his will that we were brought forth. We were given spiritual life. It's of him that we're born again. And this verse puts us in a, a place of navigating through some deep waters. But so it is with spiritual birth. Verse 18, of his own, own will he brought us forth. We are brought forth by the decision, by the initiative, and by the will of the Father. 
God's choice and the exercise of his will will give us spiritual life. Let me just survey a couple brief places. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul says it plainly in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1.3, we studied through 1 Peter recently. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I was thinking about this last week, like even in my own life personally. I was thinking about all the different things that exerted some sort of force on me from outside of me that caused me to do certain things or redirected my time. Like everything from the HOA in my neighborhood to New Hanover County because of the rabies vaccine for my dog, like members in the church, like my own kids, my wife, like there's, there's a million different things that cause me to go to and fro. I have to respond to and, and I'm motivated by and directed by things outside of me, external forces, not so with God. There's nothing outside of God persuading him to cause us to come to life. Of his own will, he brought us forth. This is amazing. And it's deep and it's hard to understand how the Bible can uphold the free will of man saying, come to me, believe in me, drink from me, eat of me. All these calls to volition of choice, but yet at the same time, see, that choice is even in and of itself is a gift of God. Because left to ourselves, we never choose Christ. Because we're so dead in our sin. This is so important. It might seem kind of like disconnected from the practical trial you thought of earlier. But just remember, the greatest problem in your life eternally has been solved through Jesus Christ. It's not irrelevant. And if you have any leaning toward the things of God, it's owing to the grace of God. He, of his own will, has brought you forth out of a place of death into life. It's amazing grace, and it blows circuits. And I think every time I preach on this reality, I feel just deep in my heart this sense of inadequacy, which I know is right, but still difficult nonetheless. But there's no external force that persuaded or pressured God to act. God freely and deliberately decided to make us alive. He made us alive if we're in Jesus. And that was his deliberate, kind, intentional decision to bring us forth, to give us birth, to make us alive. Jesus himself, John 15 and 16, and so many other places. This is just one. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. He gave us birth of his own will. And church family, I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to do a little bit of a rabbit trail here. I don't want it to feel like a soapbox because for me, pastorally, it's, it's very relevant. And there's, there's a cultural and a cultural within the church mentality that sounds a little bit something like this. I've seen, I've been walking with Jesus for 25-ish years, a little bit less than that. And over the course of my walking with the Lord, I've seen become more and more common the emphasis on 
the worthiness of man. This, this pursuit of wanting to believe that we're worthy. And even like books and authors begin to shape perspective around you are worthy. You are enough. Like you hear that kind of vernacular. Now, here's what I want to do is I want to affirm something about what I think is present in that, but I want, to, I, want to, I want to take away something in it that I think is damaging. And here's what I would affirm. As human beings made in the image of God, you, I want to say we, I'll say you, you possess infinite worth. You could easily say, you could biblically say you are priceless. Because you're made in the image of God. You possess inherent value and worth because you're made in the image of God. Full stop. And that's important. That's immensely important. Eternally valuable to know that. Okay, so the Bible says you possess inherent worth and value because you're made in God's image. You're priceless. Anyone or anything that seeks to rob you of that dignity is assaulting the God who made you. Full stop. Okay, so I affirm that. And, and, and behind the you are worthy, you are enough statements, there's something in there that I think wants to grab a hold of that spiritual reality. But I think what happens at times, it happens in contemporary Christian music, it happens in contemporary Christian writing, it happens in blogs, is what happens, it begins to drift to a place where somehow the gospel is deteriorated. Because somehow we've lost the fact that, that, that in the gospel is this reality that we are not worthy of the grace of God. That's what makes it so amazing. We're, we don't deserve the love that God so freely gives. Like, we are, like he died for us when we were weak and ungodly and still sinners that Christ went to the cross. So yes, you possess infinite worth and value. But my concern is in this deep longing to feel we're enough, that we are worthy, we can actually distort the gospel, which robs us consequently of the very security that we desire because somehow it's bound up in us and robs God of the glory that he so rightfully deserves in saving his people. Of his own will, he brought us forth. The message of the Bible is not that we are forgetful people who need to remember our worth. The message of the Bible is not that we are discouraged people who need to behold our value. The message of the gospel is that we are dead people who need to be made alive. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message in this one singular verse. That we are people who need to be made alive and we can't make ourselves alive. But by the grace and the initiative of God, he brings us forth, he gives us life in that sense, we are woefully unworthy. We don't possess, we have not shown the qualities or abilities to merit recognition by God. It's, our, it's God's will, not our worthiness, that is the centerpiece of spiritual rebirth. He brings us forth, he gives us birth, he makes us alive. It's all from him and through him and to him are all things, so to him be the glory forever. Amen. So Romans 11, after just 10 chapters of Paul unpacking the mysterious nature of the gospel, that's his doxology, his response of praise is from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 
And though we were poor spiritually, he has made us unimaginably rich. We see this as Paul appeals to the Corinthian church, appealing to their own need to be generous. He points out the generosity of Jesus, that although he was rich, for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. True riches, spiritual riches, abounding riches that we need help to even understand a little bit of. Unimaginable wealth. And God's will is consistent with his character, so his choice to save us does not shift like shadows. We sang earlier about Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. He doesn't vary. He will not vary in his determination to show us mercy. So when you feel the instability of your own situation, and it causes you to wonder how God feels about you and whether or not he loves you, and if the circumstance feel consistent with that love, just go back to this fundamental truth that he brought you forth and gave you life that you didn't deserve, nor could you earn. And now you're alive in him, eternally alive. Your greatest problem has been solved through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says one day, it's the will of the Father as well, is that every single one whom the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus will raise up on the last day. Not one will be missing. Not one. And let that secure your heart when things get disorienting and you feel confused about the way that God feels about you. He does love you and there's a way in which he does delight in you, but it's not because we're delightful. You know yourself well enough. I am not delightful. As a child of God, I am woefully inconsistent. I don't love God the way that I should, but yet still, right? But God. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. That's good news, isn't it? Can I get an amen in here? Is that good news? Amen. That's good news. The best news I got for you. Even if I could change the weather right now, it wouldn't be as good as what I just gave you. But it's good news. In his kind will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God spoke his word. And if I could just make this connection. God spoke his word at the beginning of time. He gave birth to the world and everything in it. When the world was formless and void, he took it and he, and he gave it purpose and meaning. And now God has spoken through the word of truth and it speaks of the grace of his son. Ephesians 1.13 says it this way, 11 through 13. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, same phrase that James is using, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.5 says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before, and the word of the truth, the gospel. The word of truth, the gospel message, is that blind people get to see. Is that men and women who are captive to darkness 
get brought to the light. The word of truth in the gospel is that every single person who is a stranger and alien to the things and the person of God through faith in Jesus Christ can become a part of his family. The gospel message is that dead people are brought to life. Those trapped in darkness brought to light. Those living in a place of hostility between them and God, it's replaced by harmony. And one of the clearest places I, I know of in the New Testament that, that talks about this picture of blind eyes being given sight, and I pray this often before I preach, is that God would, would avail us, would, would allow us to behold like the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that's a spiritual work. It's a supernatural work. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, says it this way. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But it goes on to say, but God, who said, let light shine out of darkness all the way in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, who took a formless, void world covered in darkness and gave it light and life and purpose, the one who spoke back then and said, let light shine into darkness, he's the one Paul says, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what encourages me so much about this? Not just my own personal salvation. And you may be in this room. You might be thinking to yourself, well, Matt, you just don't know my story. Like, you don't know how dark things really are, how dark they have been, how far removed I am from the things and from the grace of God. You're right, I don't but I have a pretty significant glimpse as to how dark the world was when God spoke and life began. It was formless and void. And God spoke and life began. And encouragement is in a human heart that same miracle happens. Despite how you feel, Despite what you've done, despite how distant that person in your life you're reaching out to may be from God at the current moment, God who spoke light in the beginning into darkness is in the business of radically changing and flooding the darkness of human hearts to bring them light and to bring them life. And we need to pray to that end. That God would give us faith to believe that. He would do just that in the lives of those around us. And maybe for you this morning, you need to be confronted with the fact that he stands ready to shed light into your darkest places. To cover you with grace that you've never thought imaginable. To pick you up, to put you back together, to make you new, and to cause you to be a trophy of his grace in this world as long as he gives you breath. That you might be a child of light. The Father of lights, who from above gives good and perfect gifts to his children. It's no mistake that those children are called in the New Testament children of light. It's our identity as followers of Christ. We are ch children of light. And it's also like our spiritual clothing. Romans 13 says, put off the ways of darkness and, and put on the armor of light. And live as a child of light, putting to death the former ways that were yours 
<clears throat> this last part of this verse, this is what I'll close with. There's a so that, the purpose clause. As we go back to the, the one verse we're looking at this morning. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And there is a uniqueness to the way God has brought us forth that sets us apart, us being Christians. It sets us apart from all the other work of creation, all the other creatures God has made. Let me just unpack this a little bit. First fruits, which is a term throughout the Bible, you see it a lot in the Old Testament as it relates to sacrifice from crops and from livestock. There's a few things I would observe from just even that Old Testament connection, just the term in general. And one is this, that first fruits remind us that everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. It was, a, it was an offering brought to remind the people of God that everything comes from him and everything ultimately is for him. And so for us as believers, the first fruits of this, this redemptive work, we're also to be reminded that, that we belong to God, that everything we have belongs to him. We're just passing through, just stewarding what he's entrusted to us. As a first fruit, my life is a credit to the goodness of God and a trophy of the power of God. My spiritual life is a product of the will and the word of God. I've come from him. My life is given to him. And it's through him that I'll remain steadfast and be brought to maturity in the end. All glory due to his name, right? So, so being a first fruit reminds us that everything is from him. Everything is for God. First fruits also requires holiness. So the first fruits of the crops and livestock were, were especially those that belonged to God over and against the rest of the crops used for normal daily Needs. Exodus 23 says, First fruits brought in from the field and then into the house of the Lord as those reserved for God. Proverbs 3 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And as the people of God, we talked about this in 1 Peter. So, so the grace of God, this new life within you, if you've been brought forth and you know Jesus Christ this morning, it's not just that he's done something for you. But he's done something in you that he might do something through you. And there's a, there's a calling upon the lives of the people of God to be different, to be holy, like that set-apart offering that's special unto God. And it's, Christians are, are kind of that picture. We're this set-apart group of people, set apart for the purposes and to magnify the worth and the glory of God. And we're called to be holy in all our behavior. To look at every area of our life and see it fill the lines with the word of God. That we might bring it into submission under his kingship. First fruits requires holiness. And also, this is the last thing I'll say. First fruits remind us that God's work isn't finished yet. And maybe you need that reminder even this week. There's something about this first fruits work that reminds us that all of creation, like we're, we're still in this little while where the work of God is still moving. So we're not home yet. We're not in heaven yet. God is still working in us and he's still working in 
the world and points to the order of God's redemptive work. And probably the best place to look is Romans 8. I'll read this and then share a couple brief thoughts when we'll be done. Romans 8, 18 through 23. And I want you just to kind of think about the wording used in James 1, first fruits of his creatures, and look how Paul in Romans 8 kind of situates the believer, the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits against the creation itself. He says in verse 18, Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, all of creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, there it is again, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, forward-looking, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's like creation itself is longing for the very freedom that the people of God as the first fruits enjoy. Redemption. So the greatest picture, there's a beautiful sunrise this morning. I don't know how many people saw it. I saw it from a distance. The most beautiful moment in creation you can see on this side of heaven aches to be fully what it will be one day. The most beautiful picture in all of creation that you can find, that you have seen, it longs to be redeemed the way the people of God will finally and fully be redeemed. It hopes for that future day. In verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of creation, every creature waits with longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The children of God, although redeemed and set free from sin, we groan inwardly for the completion of that work that God has begun in us here. And the Spirit is like the first installment of the adoption and redemption that will be full and final one day. Church family, like we have been brought forth by the Father of lights. As I mentioned just a minute ago, what that means is that you have the light of God himself inside you to shine light into this world. It's no mistake that Jesus says, let your light shine before men, right? In such a way that they might see your good works and glorify who? Well, your light belongs, it's derivative of someone else and it's for someone else. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father, the Father of lights who is in heaven who gave you the very light to shine. And maybe there's someone in this room, and I'll close with this thought. Maybe you ask like some people did in the Bible, like what, sh- like, what should I do? Like what should I do in response to what I've heard? What should I do in response to feeling maybe this disconnect where I don't belong to, I don't actually belong to God. Like I've never really responded and submitted my heart to him. And I would respond with maybe just some simple words that Jesus uttered, that the Bible utters. Jesus says, come to me. Believe in me. Find your rest in me. Trust in me and you will be set free. I'll bring you out from your grave and give you new spiritual life. A spiritual life that will never be taken away from you because you will never be taken away from me. Amen? Let's pray. Amen.
God, thanks, Thanksgiving is woefully inadequate to uh, respond to the work that you have done in us. Um, these are deep truths that we have very briefly touched on. And maybe for some of us, they're really difficult truths to wrestle through. But just because they're deep, just because they're difficult, doesn't mean they're not important. In fact, they're, they're eternally important for our souls. They practically make a difference now. And so I pray that you would give us the faith to believe your word. I pray that you give us clarity to understand what it means to be those who have been given true and lasting eternal spiritual life. And God, I thank you that you're still in the business of making dead things come alive. That through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that there is no human being on this planet that's so far removed from you that they can't be made alive. Because you take dark things and you give them light. You take formless things and you infuse them with purpose and meaning. And you do that in human lives. You did it in my own. And so God, I pray that for us as your people, every single person in this room, that we would personalize, that we think about our condition before you, whether or not we are those who before you were spiritually dead, disconnected from the life of God, or those who have been made alive by you. And I pray that we turn, that we turn to you, give our lives to you more fully for those who belong to you and anyone who's yet to bend their knee to you, that they would run, run to Christ, find life in him, find purpose in him, find light in him. And I pray that you'd help us as a church body to be children of light, to walk in holiness, Although in process that we be making progress, that we be those who let our light shine before this world that desperately needs to know that Jesus makes a difference. Help us, I pray, through the power of your spirit, through the, your goodwill that is going to finish what you started in us and the power of your word that we hold near to our hearts with the people of God around us. Help us to, to make a difference for you in this life, in this world, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. We thank you for the work that you have done and will do through your word even today still. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together.